This is an ABC podcast. If you were a kleptocrat, the most important thing to you would be keeping in power. So Putin's war in Ukraine is about him, not Russia. More on that later. I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is Counterpoint. The Chinese government may well look to growing a capitalist economy, but on the cultural side, America seems to them a bad model. The American development of social media is in China, albeit heavily controlled, and as it turns out, manipulated. In another context, namely clickbait extremism, social media is of concern to all of us. There's a lot of talk about it, but not enough action. But let's go first to the kleptocrats' war move to try and hold on to power. Every day we hear about the war in Ukraine. And we sometimes talk about, why did Russia do this? A better question might be, why did Putin do this? What's his stake in this? He's widely regarded as one of the world's best, if you can use that adjective, kleptocrats, and that might have something to do with it. Joining us now to talk about that is Robert Horvath. He's a lecturer in Russian politics at La Trobe University. Robert, just how rich is Putin, do you think? Stinking, filthy rich? I think that's definitely an accurate description of his wealth. It's difficult to give a precise figure. Put a figure, real figure yeah. Yeah, but it's certainly in the tens of billions of dollars. We know from the Panama Papers that the cellist Roald Dugin, who was the best man at Putin's wedding, was moving sums around in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So there are strong grounds for believing that his wealth is something in the tens of billions of dollars. Mm, that's incredible, isn't it? You know, it's odd, I think, Robert, that a lot of the debate we see as I think you point out, is some analysts like to expound on, well, look, if the United States hadn't tried to expand NATO interests into Russia's backyard, this wouldn't have happened. And others say, oh, no, that's not right. This is the ideological evolution of Putin's authoritarian regime now becoming, you know, crazy nationalistic and imperialistic. But you don't see too many people talking about what you've raised, which I think is a very interesting point. I mean, it could be that as you say, some people say, Putin is in fact a sincere defender of Russia's national interest as he understands it. But nonetheless, what's going on in Russia does seem to indicate, doesn't it, that he's got to hold on to power and one way to do that is to go to war. So what did you learn from Samuel Green, the political scientist at King's College in London? I think that Samuel Green's great contribution was to draw a conceptual distinction between regime security on the one hand and national security on the other. The vast majority of discussion about Putin's foreign policy and his aggression on the international stage is based on assumptions about how great powers operate and Russia is supposed to be a normal great power. And therefore, whatever Putin does, these analysts and these IR scholars have attempted to explain it in terms of some kind of national interest that they deduce from Putin's own actions and from Kremlin propaganda that's constantly fixated on this idea that the West is predatory, the West is out to destroy Russia, the West is seeking to pillage its resources and enslave its population. But Sam Green's contribution was to draw attention to the issue of regime security. That is to say, the power of Putin and the clan of cronies around him, the people who have pillaged the Russian state for the past 22 years, and to argue that the attack on Ukraine owes far more to the self-interests of that small group of people rather than to the long-term strategic interests of the Russian state. Yeah. Well, let's look at, say, the last 10 years from the protest movement of 2011-12 and then onwards there was Navalny. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of agitation around him, 27-2020. There's been a succession of sort of domestic upsets. Do you think that's crept into the minds of these people that those upsets are going to keep coming unless they strengthen their power and they can do that by being seen to be strong and invading Ukraine? 
Absolutely. Well, I think there is a very close connection between the challenges that the regime has faced at home and its aggression on the international stage. Arguably, this goes back to Ukraine's first democratic revolution in 2004, the so-called Orange Revolution, which was followed by a series of extremely repressive changes within Russia and the adoption of this ideology that was propagated by Kremlin youth organizations like Nashi and by propagandists on TV that the West was out to destroy Russia. Russia needed a domestic repressive regime, which was then described as sovereign democracy to protect itself from the West. And that line became more and more strident after the 2011 to 2012 protests, which Putin repeatedly publicly blamed on the West. He claimed that Hillary Clinton gave the signal for the protesters. There was all sorts of propaganda on Russian TV about how US Senator John McCain was behind it. And that intensified in the years that followed. And at the same time, this was bound up with a kind of securitization of the idea of democratic revolution. Coloured revolution was conceived as a military threat and something that required a military response. And arguably the culmination of this process was the Navalny crisis of 2020 to 2021 and the invasion of Ukraine that followed. Mm. Navalny's still in jail, isn't he? Yes, that's right. I think he's been in prison now for about 650 days. Gee. You raise, I think, point, or you raise it in a way that brings some clarity to it. And that is, if these kleptocrats are going around ripping off the system, stashing wealth in their own accounts at the expense of their own people, I mean, let's face it, if he's got tens of billions of dollars, it's tens of billions of dollars that haven't been distributed in other ways to other people, maybe in quite large amounts to smaller capitalists, maybe in even smaller amounts to the population as a whole. But nonetheless, it's been ripped off. So as people in your country become poorer and you become richer, you sort of got a bit of a, you call it a legitimacy deficit, as if, you know, you don't really have the interests of your people at heart. And that explains to me why you might then say, well, I have to turn myself into a super nationalist, a super patriot. My narrative has to be about how much I love Russia. And that's a bit behind this business in Ukraine. You know, it's always been ours. We should be there. I'm in favour of Russia having its rightful place. That's what he says it's all about. I think that's a really good way of explaining it, the way you've done it. Do you think all the other kleptocrats are on side or is there some hesitancy now that Putin's not turning out to be as capable as some of them might have thought, and in their own interest, while you might say, well, kleptocrats have got an interest in, you know, looking like super patriots. But if Putin doesn't appear to be doing the job, will some of those kleptocrats turn to another leader? Certainly the scale of the military catastrophe in Ukraine is creating domestic legitimacy problems for Putin. And There are certainly going to be members of the elite who've stuck with him so far who are now asking themselves, has Putin become a liability? And is there a way that we can preserve our position and our system by extricating us from this war and maintaining our privileges and our wealth and avoiding a revolutionary crisis? However, so far... What we've seen more of is people leaving, people departing, renouncing Russian citizenship or quietly leaving rather than members of the elite around Putin challenging him. Now, on on one level, that's not completely surprising. It's very likely that the first inkling we'll get of a conspiracy against Putin is the news that he was arrested and other people have taken power. Or that he fell off a balcony. Or, yes, he's fallen off a balcony or drunk Mm. some tea that was, yeah. There are many possibilities, yeah. Certainly, there would be people in the elite around Putin who would want to preserve their own wealth and prosperity at all costs. However, there are others whose entire career has been 
bound to Putin very closely, particularly those who knew him in St. Petersburg in the 1990s and were involved in his corruption schemes then. These are people who it's very difficult to see them surviving in a Russia where Putin has fallen. Why don't they just tick off with their money to the extent that they can get it out or haven't already you know, had it out for some time and work to depose him from overseas? It's not as if you have to be there to do that, you know. This is a complex question. It's certainly one of the main reasons why Russian Democrats like Alexei Navalny and Vladimir Karamurzar mm. decided yeah. to return to Russia with the awareness that they will have legitimacy as Russian politicians because they were in Russia, that they weren't from outside. Outside, yeah, yeah. yeah. The essence of the Putin regime's propaganda is that there are foreigners and traitors who are out to destroy us. And anyone who is outside of Russia, has a weaker moral position than yeah, those well, who are within Russia. I, you know, I, I agree. I can understand that. But I suppose I'm wondering about what if the big kleptocrats shoved off and spoke from outside? I mean, I know Russia's secret services would have rather long tentacles, but it's a lot easier to speak from the outside. And if mm. you had your money and you were determined to keep it and still be a crook, you could nonetheless mm. sort of go out in an altruistic way tick off out of Russia and, you know, fund an opposition from outside, do all sorts of things. Well, this is basically something that Mikhail Kharakovsky, the oligarch who was Russia's richest man until he crossed Putin in 2002, has been doing. Kharakovsky's Open Russia Foundation provided enormous funding for civil society and pro-democracy groups in Russia. It was then designated an extremist organization, which means that anyone who is associated with it in any way will face prison terms. So Russia isn't a place where it's tremendously easy to instigate political activity within the country from outside. There are, however, some significant things that have been happening. A lot of the media that's been suppressed within Russia has relocated in some way outside Russia. The most important is the cable TV station Dorj, which has tremendous moral authority and has been broadcasting from Latvia for the past two months or so. Developments like that are really important. A lot of my research has been about the struggle for democracy in Russia. I've attended as an observer many demonstrations in Russia, mm -hmm. some with thousands of people chanting Putin is a thief, others being violently dispersed by riot police. And I've seen the courage of a lot of people standing up in really difficult conditions to an extremely mm. brutal regime. And that's something that's always inspiring, the fact that the human oh, yearning for freedom has actually been difficult for Putin to extinguish it with all of the power and the resources that his state possesses. Well, that's a good note, a very good note to end this interview, Robert Horvath. It must be a fascinating life studying Russia with the changes that have been going on. And thank you for making the time to share some of that knowledge with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, the rant for this week. Well, look, it's celebrity this, that and everything else. I'm a bit tired of it, a bit tired of celebrities. Let's go to celebrities' chefs. Now, Yotam Ottolenghi, good chef, got some of the books, love them. Tired of going to dinners when people say we're having Yotam's this or Yotam's that. Really, is there anyone else in the world? I think. He's not a bad guy. I don't know him, but he apparently has a recipe for Marbella chicken and acknowledges that it's not the original one, which, of course, if you're a cook, you'll know is from the Silver Palette cookbook in the United States where they use prunes and not dates. So all-round good guy, acknowledges recipes come from other people, good, delicious recipes, fine. But what are we doing in this country? We've got Greg and Lucy Maloof here. If you haven't had a look at their cookbooks, have a look. Now, this is not free advertising on the ABC because you can go and buy any of these books or you can borrow them from libraries. I'm just talking about the point. I'm acknowledging that Yotam Ottolenghi is a great cook and a great communicator. Blah-dee, blah-dee, blah. -de -blah, -de -blah. 
but stick your nose into one of Greg and Lucy Maloof's books. Talk about easy, delicious, luscious. And they're here with us in Australia. Go and get one from the library. Have a look and give it a run. Well, we have Greg and Lucy Maloof. You can bet China's got so many fabulous chefs, we couldn't even start to list them. Heavens above, are you tired of reading about the United States and China? You couldn't be. I mean, it's a fascinating story, depending on which perspective you take. It's like a skyscraper and one day you're looking in at one floor and the next day you're looking in at another floor from a different angle. So there are different visions that we can have of this, different ways of looking at it, different perspectives. And they're all important if you want to try and get a much better understanding. So with that in mind, when we saw an article entitled The Rise and Fall of Chimerica, I thought, all right, let's have a look at this. And it says that for decades, America gave China a vision of future prosperity. But today, America has mostly ceased to offer a model for China or anywhere else, leaving China's leaders without a guide as they chart a course into a future filled with potential turmoil. Well, our next guest got that in one, didn't he? It's Jacob Dreyer. He's joined us before on CounterPoint. And as you well know, therefore, if you're a regular listener, he's a writer and editor based in Shanghai. And he joins us now. Jacob Dreyer, what's the nickname, if you like, for Shanghai? It's the Modu, the magic city, kind of like the enchanted city. Just like how they say New York is a city that never sleeps, so Chinese mm-hmm. call Shanghai the enchanted city because it's a city where anything can seem to happen. You can totally go from rags to riches or transform yourself or something like that. And mm. I had that phrase in mind during the Shanghai lockdown, which I was in Shanghai <laughs> before, yeah. Because I kept thinking, first of all, as an American citizen, like, should I leave? Like, when is it going to be the time that I miss the last helicopter out of Saigon, so to speak? I kept thinking of fairy tales, like you go find all these gold coins and put them in your pocket. Then when you wake up, you realize it's just straw. So mm. as someone who's had a very great life here in China for 10 years, I kept wondering, like, this enchantment, this spell that's driven so much economic growth, everything's possible. And I was wondering during lockdown, is the spell over? Is the spell broken? Is the magic enchantment, mm. you know, just shattered? Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say that China is a capitalist country run by communists. Capitalism is everywhere. And is it fair to say, I mean, you live there, so you tell me, is it fair to say that it's not so much the Chinese government but capitalism that has changed China so dramatically in the last three or four decades? I think that's very true. And I think that capitalism has changed China. So Mao Zedong famously said, you know, Kissinger said, oh, you're so powerful in China. And Mao said to him, oh, I've only managed to change Beijing and the suburbs. But the economic change in China has changed every single person, place and thing in China. It's literally, if you look at the demographics, people's average height is different. What people eat for dinner is different. Mm. The clothes people wear are different. The houses they live are different. So even like literally the strength of your children's bones inside of their body is different because of these economic changes. Sometimes people say that the Chinese government is riding the tiger of nationalism, but I think that they're really riding the tiger of an economy that is constantly changing the country in ways that they find hard to predict. And they want to control that both out of their own impulse for control, but also to protect some of their more vulnerable citizens. But you always run the risk of trying to control it, that you just turn it off and make it stop. So that's, mm. I think, what they're going through now. Trying to work out what to do. Well, they've been following the United States for some time, and it was equally some time ago that Wang Hu Ning went to the United States, a professor of politics at Fudan University. What did he see? What did he think he saw anyway? What was his perception of what he was looking at? So Wang who, by the way, I wrote this article before the 20th Party Congress, but during uh, no, this was... Congress, he's being announced that he got a promotion, so he's staying around. So Wang, he wrote his, it's more like a diary or travel notes than an academic book. So he talks about seeing homeless people in California, and he talks about almost getting mugged in Harlem in New York, and he talks about how fat people are in the heartland. So it was pretty much the same old complaints that we always might hear. But he also tours, like, as a communist in the late 1980s, he's so curious how corporations work. So he goes to the headquarters of Coca-Cola, 
and he sees the CEO of Coca-Cola has framed pictures with all these presidents and prime ministers. And he's mm-hmm. like, wow. And he thinks, one million people work for Coca-Cola. That's like an army. So how do I understand Coca-Cola? Is Coca-Cola actually like a country or what is it? It's just like these concepts don't really compute for him. And then he tours Stanford University, tries to figure out what is the Internet. It's almost like he's trying to understand what these mysterious concepts are. And you have the feeling that he goes to America and he sees all these things he finds disturbing. And he thinks, this is too crazy to work. It can't possibly work. But then somehow it works. You know, he can see the computers are being made. He can see the corporations are so strong. And he's like, how does this make sense? He doesn't really understand. So he's just trying to figure it out. Okay. Now, when Trump was elected, there were people who said, well, even before then, people were recognising, I think, some deficiencies, if you like, in the practice of democratic government in the United States. That's the nicest way I can say it. And Trump's election and subsequent behaviour sort of confirmed that. But David Runciman says this is just a midlife crisis. It's not, you know, the end of the world. What do you think the Chinese think about that comment that America's just in a midlife crisis as opposed to an end-of-life crisis? Well, I think that opinion is really divided and often on generational lines. So Mm -hmm. the president of China is from the 1950s generation. He's talked about how when he was a young man at school, he didn't have enough food to eat because the U.S. had a 1957 export ban to China. And so there were famines partly because of that. Rightly or wrongly, the people in the 1950s really relate to the Soviet Union. I mean, they had a war with the United States and Korea, and that's their worldview. So some of those people, they're always wanting to see the end of America, the death of America. I'm not going to say the president does, but there's that tendency. On the other hand, people who are a bit younger, born in the 1970s, they watch China getting so much richer after the reform and opening of Deng Xiaoping. And I think a lot of those generations are a lot more skeptical of the idea that America is so decadent and corrupt and whatever. So I think there's a real generational clash in that. But Mm. although China is a very old country, in the 1960s and 70s Cultural Revolution, so many things got torn down. And when they were rebuilding, they really modeled a lot on the United States. It's not that the U.S. and China have these conflicts because they're so different. It's actually because they're very similar. And in so many ways, China has aspired to beat America at its own game getting university rankings that are just as good, trying to get Nobel Prizes, trying to like make Manhattan of the East like Shanghai used to try to be, and things like that. And I always think of China's relationship to the U.S. as almost like an angry teenager talking to their parents, like, you can't make the rules. And then the dad says, oh, it's my house, my rules. You don't like it, get out. And then China can't get out because they need to use the U.S. dollar. But they really, they just can't stand it when dad tells them what to do, even if dad is actually right. Meanwhile, dad might feel a little bit insecure because not that long ago, you know, they were having good times. And now all of a sudden, this, you know, child who is kind of emulating him is challenging him, is really tall and kind of, frankly, a little bit frightening. And so I think it's actually the points of resemblance which make the countries come into conflict. And a lot Mm. of the people who have been in charge in China, in fact, have a lot of experience of the United States, like Wang Huning. They may have traveled in the United States, worked in the United States, done university even spent decades in the United States working in business. And ironically, some of those people are the ones who've turned around and been the most fervent nationalists. Mm, That's odd, isn't it? Now, you talk about this guy, Philip Tanari, who was in China when the Twin Towers were blown up. And your article talks about the sort of freedom that he experienced there, not the sort of freedom that people outside of China imagine is there. I mean, the minds of people are full of a government that watches everything you do, that you know, gives you demerit points if you cross the street where you're not meant to watch, 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 watch. You know, individual freedom doesn't come to mind when you think of China, but you talk of the individual freedom he had. But is it true that there are limits to that? So that within a certain bracket, maybe in certain subject areas, you can do and say what you like, but go outside that. Criticising your government, which is an essential element of the freedoms in democratic countries, and then you might not be so free. Is that fair to say that? I think that's very fair. And I also think that maybe this is for people like Phil and also myself changing a bit. Of course, Phil is an American citizen. And so Mm. the rules for him are a little bit different than what they might be for, you know, Chinese friends and colleagues. His wife was Chinese citizen. But for a lot of us, you know, well, our friends who are living back in the States, they were, you know, 
kind of getting the job, paying the mortgage. They were just living their somewhat boring little mm. lives. And people like Phil were really just almost having crazy adventures, going all over the country, hanging out with artists, making fortunes, meeting weird billionaires, mm. you know, all this kind of really, you know, wild and crazy stuff. So it definitely felt a lot more adventurous and in that way very free compared to our friends who might be thinking, okay, you know, what am I going to watch on Netflix tonight? And I would say that my experience, I also had this experience because I've been in China for quite a while. And for so long, it felt like a anarchic place. And the economic growth fueled that because there was always another party and there was always another thing to do. And if you got one thing wrong, you could always find another job. And that kind of freed people up. But during the COVID pandemic, and especially now that we have to scan codes on our phones to get anywhere, I think that some of us have been thinking, all right, the social contract has fundamentally just changed. And you almost wake up and think, like, was it just a dream? And talking to Phil, I, I got that sense. Mm. Now, we talk about his freedom and yours, for example, and the great life that you can live. And I sort of get it, having been to Shanghai a couple of times myself. I think you must have a fantastic life. But our own individual perception of a city or of a country is not the whole truth of it. I mean, the truth is there's still millions and millions and millions of people in China living in abject poverty, who are nowhere near a middle class. Nowhere near. Isn't it right that that young girl who, gee, she got in just on time to the Winter Olympics and was it Winter Olympics? She won some diving thing or ski jumping thing, I can't remember. Anyway, they had to cement a road in her village because so many people want to go and see where she was born. She lived in a place of not That's even right. a decent road. So, you know, we can't judge it by American expats having a great time in Shanghai, can we? Of course. Well, actually, I think that's a really good point because one of the things that I think have made Phil and my friends in the United States not free yeah. to do things that they want is the economic situation there where people are not able to buy a house. Maybe they're not able to live in the city that they want. They might not feel able to have children. And these very real life things, and it's for economic reasons. So FDR, the American president in the 1930s during the New Deal period, he mm -hmm. talked about the four freedoms. One was freedom from want. And it seems like China is not a very free place in, you know, freedom of speech sort of way. Mm. But in the last 10 years, they've tried to do this massive anti-poverty campaign. And the idea is that by getting richer, you'll be able to be more free to do things that you might want, like have children or yeah, live sure. the life that you want. So if you contrast, say, India, which is a democracy, which on some level does have freedom of speech and you do vote, but there's so many people who are illiterate. And then you say China, where the people don't have those things, but they might be able to have more modern lives, then you might say, so who's really having the greater range of options available to them, which I guess you could say is freedom. Who can really say, I want this kind of life and then get it? Yeah. So where do we go when we look at, for example, the old elitist meritocratic aspects of Confucianism with Mao's ideas or traditions, if you like, you call them of equality and justice. They're sort of competing against each other to the extent that there are generations still familiar with Confucius in China. And equally, people in America say they want, what do they say? Liberty, equality and justice. Liberty, Not equality and the, the pursuit of happiness, isn't it? Yeah, well, sometimes I don't think they appreciate they are sometimes mutually inconsistent terms. But, you know, there's a bit of a tension going on there with that and the free market competition. So both countries have these tensions within them. Now, what China probably has to do is to work out how, says she, you know, a retired politician, just a view, let's put it this way, is work out how to let capitalism, you know, run freely and still keep those elements of the communist system that make China, China. Yeah, that that's right. Just the other day, I saw that after the new governing lineup was announced, the Chinese stock markets all crashed by a lot because I guess global capitalists don't like what they see. And I think that there's some people in the Chinese leadership who are inclined to say, well, capitalism is our enemy. So of course they don't like it. And then maybe a bit more practical ones are like, hey, we actually do need money to do the things that we want. You know, we're not really Bolshevik revolutionaries here. We just want a hospital system. I think a lot of the time what the Chinese leadership say they want sounds like the kind of social security net that any Western country has. So Xi Jinping talks about common prosperity. And that means like, that there would be paved roads in that Olympic athlete's home, or that there would be hospital systems that everyone can access, 
or that the amount of Chinese teenagers who can go to high school goes up, or these kind of investments. And a lot of economists think that it's a major barrier to China's further growth, that they lack a social security net. It tends to make everyone save a lot of money because if getting you know, a freak injury or your mother getting a disease means that you have to have cash just to pay for it, then people don't spend money. So I think it's a really hard problem, and it's kind of like a math problem that they're trying to solve about do you grow the pie bigger or do you divide it more equally or do you try to do both at the same time? And I also think that in the years of China getting 8% growth, it was a lot easier to just cover up these problems because mm. you don't need to really balance the pocketbook that much if every month you're making more and more money. But if all of a sudden you're not making That's more money, then you have to make a lot win. more difficult choices. You do indeed. Yeah. Well, their government faces a very, very difficult task. I don't think any Western leader just say they could tomorrow speak fluent Mandarin. I don't think they would have the answers to how to manage this. I mean, shifting towards, as you say, a Chinese-style democracy, a Chinese-style rule of law, none of that is going to be easy. But I tell you what, having someone like you, Jacob Dreyer, explain some of this to us has made it easier for us to understand. Thanks for joining us on CounterPoint. Thank you so much. China might not want to follow the American model, but my heavens, they are using... American social media to influence us. China, China, China. We hear about it all the time in terms of, you know, not enough freedom in China, trade disputes with China, China using its muscle here, there and everywhere, China monitoring its citizens and China and social media. Well, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute have done a bit of work in this area, thankfully, means we don't have to and we can talk to them. And they've published an article recently, Frontier Influences, the New Face of China's Propaganda. One of the authors of that was Fergus Ryan. He's a senior analyst at ASPE in the International Cyber Policy Centre. And he joins us now. Fergus Ryan, China doesn't want to be America, but they certainly use developments that have come out of the United States like social media, don't they? What's the sort of bottom line, if we can put it that way, of the Chinese government's use of social media to influence people both in China and out? Well, you're right. The Chinese government, Chinese diplomats in particular, in recent years have been making full use of platforms like Twitter, Facebook and YouTube that are blocked in China. So what we looked at in this report was a set of YouTube accounts of young ethnic minority women from regions like Xinjiang and Tibet, because we noticed that they also had YouTube accounts, which struck us as quite odd since YouTube is blocked in China. So our report is an attempt to dig deep into these accounts and figure out what's going on. Why are these accounts even allowed to exist? Mm, and what did you find? Well, what we found was that behind these accounts and the people who run them were a set of agencies known in China as multi-channel networks or MCNs. So the content that they're creating appears to be genuine. It's sort of a bit rough around the edges. They're talking about how you know great life is in regions like Xinjiang and occasionally pushing back directly on criticism from outside of China about human rights abuses that are taking place in those regions. But while the content looks like it's just coming directly from them, it's actually filtered through these MCNs, these agencies that they work for. And those agencies are very tightly connected to the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. Now... You did say what MCNs are, but it's not crystal clear to me. Can you paint a fuller picture of what they are and how they operate for me? Sure. I mean, they're just like agencies that help these individual influencers do their job in a more professional way. So a lot of the young women whose videos we watched, we watched close to 1,000 of these videos by working with these agencies, they get more resources. So they're able to churn out this content at a much faster pace and a more consistent pace. And so 
what that means is that the content goes onto platforms like YouTube. And because YouTube and other platforms like it, the algorithm really loves fresh content. And so when you search for things like Xinjiang on a platform like YouTube, a lot of this content comes up. So at the end of the day, what that means is, you know, you might have every now and then, you know, every three or four months, a really well-researched, well-reported video from New York Times, for example, mm. about what's happening in Xinjiang. But it's yep. flooded out by all this other content that's created by these influencers who are being helped by the MCNs, the agencies that they work for. Mm. Do you get the idea these people get paid a decent amount of money? I mean, are they like Western influencers for whom I do not have a high regard, seem to make their money just flogging other people's stuff and demanding stuff for free. But do these influencers get paid a decent amount of money or are they doing it for altruistic reasons or what? What's the motivation? Well, there's a dual motivation. So there's definitely a commercial motivation. But when we took a closer look at the MCNs, we saw that these companies have both a commercial motivation, but also mm -hmm. they're motivated to push out Chinese propaganda into the world. And you only need to go to their website or their WeChat accounts to see them publicly stating this. And so the influences that we looked at, there's a range. So there are some who have, you know, 200,000 plus followers on YouTube and many, many more inside China. And they're doing a lot better than some of the smaller accounts we looked at. But there's certainly a range there. Yeah. Now, you looked at the most influential channels or the channels with, you know, a lot of sway. One of the influencers, an individual one, was Li Zhi. And the photograph I'm looking at is her, I assume it's her, looking like a nice young woman making some sort of soup, I don't know, stirring a pot. How many followers has she got? Well, the last time we looked, she had 17.1 million followers just on YouTube alone. <laughs> so, you know... Even more when you count the domestic fan base that she has. Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, 17 million followers. Influencers in Sydney and Melbourne can just eat their heart out. That's, you know, what, three quarters of our population. It's just phenomenal figures. And the capacity to get out is pretty good. Mind you, it's all relative, isn't it? They've got a much bigger population, so it's not that easy to get out to everyone. You mentioned that the biggest influencers, the top 30 YouTube channels, earlier this year had 74 million subscribers and that's about 45% say of the total number of fans of the top 100 Chinese channels. It's pretty concentrated, isn't it? It is and it's normally the case that if you are an influencer or a content creator based in China that you're not allowed to monetize your content on YouTube so you mm -hmm. can't get ad revenue. But yeah. what we discovered through our research for this report was that via these special arrangements set up by the agencies or MCNs with YouTube, there's essentially a loophole that they're exploiting where they're able to monetize the content. How do they do that? What is that loophole? What does it allow them to do to get money? So if you're an individual influencer and you went to YouTube and you put your content up and you applied to get ad revenue, you would not be allowed if you're based in China. That seems like a fair deal because, you know, after all, the platform is blocked in China. So there yep. doesn't seem to be much reason why people should be able to monetize if they're based sure. there. But what we discovered is that if they work for an agency, one of these MCNs, those MCNs are then able to have a special agreement with YouTube that is effectively a loophole that allows these influencers to monetize. And so, you know, when you're looking at these particular accounts that, you know, most of the time, 87% of the time, they're posting sort of fairly harmless lifestyle content, but the remainder of the content that they put out is either implicit propaganda or very explicit propaganda. Mm. And so this arrangement essentially means that that propaganda is being subsidised by YouTube. Yeah. Now, from the work that you've done, you guys come up with an idea of 8% implicit propaganda and 
3.5% say explicit and the 88, nearly 89% being quasi-lifestyle. But under the quasi-lifestyle, they still manage to push a story, don't they? I mean, all stories in a sense, stories in Western novels sell particular moral themes. So why wouldn't the quasi-lifestyle channels in China do the same? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why we didn't categorise them as just merely lifestyle videos. We called them quasi-lifestyle videos because they show a really standardised, secular and pristine mm. image of these regions. You know, and any of the content creators that we looked at were essentially politically vetted. So they were always, you know, very consistently showing their loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. And the content that they're creating, it's very sort of subtle propaganda. It's showing a vision of Xi Jinping's beautiful China. And it's one that's completely scrubbed of politics and religion and instead just shows this idyllic natural environment and sort of innocuous elements of cultures like cooking and dancing. Mm. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, if you were in charge of Chinese propaganda, I just wonder if there is one person in charge of that or whether there's a number, but it would be an empire, something really worth knowing more about. Fergus Ryan, thanks for joining us today on CounterPoint and giving us a small insight, that's all we can do in an interview, into the tremendous work that Aspie's doing on this matter. Thanks for having me. And on the theme of social media, you know, we hear a lot about controlling social media, clickbait extremism, the risks to all of us. Hmm, might be a lot of talk and not much action. Social media, we hear about it all the time. People say, what do you follow on social media? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Oh, no, I'm not on Facebook. Blah, blah, blah. You listen to why. But it's a big part of our lives, whatever social media you are engaged in or otherwise. It's changed the world quite dramatically. You know, we used to think the internet was going to be the source of all truth, and now we know that's not the case. Well, you might be able to find it, but you find other stuff as well. Anyway, social media companies are out there, and they're under the microscope. Someone who knows quite a bit about this is Shirley Leach. She's an ANU professorial fellow and emeritus professor at Australian National University. She's also the co-editor of the book Rethinking Social Media and Extremism and she contributed a couple of chapters to that book. Anyway, she joins us now. Shirley Leach, social media companies. They've done okay out of every crisis that comes, haven't they? They're almost like, I don't know, ghouls that feed on a crisis. That's absolutely right. Every time you follow any kind of link on social media, they've monetized it. And that's why they are heavily invested in making sure that you spend as much time as you possibly can on their platforms and they do everything they can to keep you there. Mm. So they've done pretty well out of crises. Do they help generate them? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think they help generate them in a couple of ways. One way is by amplifying them because something becomes a crisis, I guess, if it spreads. And certainly social media has proved very effective at spreading crises. But there's growing evidence that social media has become implicated in all kinds of extreme and terrorist activities as well. And so in that sense, they help to create them. Mm, mm. In an article you've written for The Conversation, you mentioned a former Twitter employee begging the company to take stronger action. This was in relation to the riots in the United States, saying yes. when people are shooting each other tomorrow, I will try to rest in the knowledge that we tried. I mean, that's frightening, isn't it? That You've got all these people out there, they've got their phones, they're using social media in an instance where they're riled up, a bit tense, the adrenaline's running and they get a message Sure, they could stop thinking, check the message and, you know, check four or five other sources. But in those circumstances, when adrenaline is running, they don't, do they? And that means social media at those times, over those days, is extraordinarily powerful because it's chucking a match into a tinderbox. 
You've raised a really interesting point about the timeliness of these kinds of messages. It's not just what is said on social media. It's the fact that social media has the ability to kind of light up instantaneously and spread like wildfire when emotions are running really high. And if you're getting to, say, for example, the pro-Trump rally followed by the storming of the Capitol building, Mm. if you've got a whole group of people who've been motivated by social media to travel to D.C., and then social media is contributing to feed the emotions that are already running incredibly high in that crowd, it doesn't really matter what might be coming out a week later. It's kind of too late. The Capitol building was stormed. You know, people died. kind of too late. It's too too late. late. Look, years ago, we did an interview with somebody who was talking about social media and mobile phones being so useful in military operations. And Mm. it was at a time when Europe didn't have what it's got now, for example, and we could see that this was the case. But imagine you're talking about squadron leaders and, you know, people with some sort of level of authority within armed forces or within radical groups using it, and it's moved on from there to one where the most junior person joining in can use their phone and see all this stuff. And I find it hard to imagine that if you've got, let's take it away from the capital riots just for a minute. You've got two teams in a live situation in a city where things are going really bad. One's yellow and one's green. And the green people suddenly believe, because they've been told, that the yellow people have deliberately or otherwise killed some children, you know, run over them with a car. You can't tell me that the people on the other side, when they come across the yellow people and they think that their team has accidentally or otherwise run over some kids with a car, that they're going to treat them in the same calm and reasonable manner they might have if they hadn't heard that. It's not only the information, it's the timing, but the content of the information can itself flare up other people. And then you find out, as you say, a week later it was wrong. But do you agree that in those circumstances people don't modify their responses? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And part of this goes back to the fact that, you know, we have an uncontrolled medium at the moment. We've got a whole regulatory framework that was designed for an analogue age. It wasn't designed for this kind of instantaneous mass communication, you know, that we find ourselves in the middle of now. So the scenario that you just painted can happen. It does happen. It has happened. It'll continue to happen until we actually sit down, not just as a nation, but globally and better regulate these kinds of platforms. Sure. Now, you raised something that sort of touched, if you like, a memory stone from my previous career. And that was the Biden administration in 2021 last year signing up to the Christchurch call because there was a big discussion about what can we do about radicalising people and people using the media and, you know, what happened in Christchurch consequently happening. But as you point out, nothing's been done. And that made me think of the people who say, oh, we've got an MOU on this, MOU meaning Memorandum of Understanding. And I think they thought I was a bit of a jerk because I'd say, so? You know, it's just a bit of paper. We agree to do this. And equally, you might say with bills passed in Parliament, I often say regular listeners will be sick of hearing this, you know, the law against murder, so what? Why do people turn to governments and say they ought to do something, they should pass a law and have this, frankly, naive view that that will make an enormous difference when what we need is people to change their behaviour? I mean, I think there's several parts to that. One of them is that if you have a completely unregulated platform like, say, Facebook, then don't be surprised if it's used by bad actors Yeah, quite Uh, agree. Because you're actually providing a haven for them. They are shut out of other forums. They can't just sort of jump onto the national broadcaster. They can't jump onto your program, for example, and spread disinformation. (laughs) No, exactly. And one of the reasons for that is because you've actually got quite regulated broadcasting system in Australia, and you've also got self-regulated press here. But what you haven't got is any controls, really, over digital media. We've put a patchwork of things in place, as you know, things like the Mm -hmm. safety commissioner to try to prevent bullying of children and image-based trolling and that sort of thing. But really, there are huge holes still, 
huge holes in regulation. So, no, obviously, having a law against murder doesn't stop people from murdering. But if it's not illegal, what are you going to do? Just say governments of the world call you in and say, okay, what's going to happen now, Shirley? What should we do? What would you pick as the first things governments of the world ought to do if they're going to listen to you? I think that they need to bring in some regulation in terms of truth, in terms of it being unlawful to knowingly spread untruths for the purpose of fermenting political unrest or inspiring violent acts. And at the moment, that's, it's not entirely clear that that is actually an illegal act. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So the laws of libel and slander and stuff, they might be some limits, but they might help those people. But fermenting, you know, social unrest, they're not covered by that, so you'd have to do that. Now, we've got all these law reform commissions, and I don't mean to be dismissive of lawyers. I was one myself once, but maybe we should shove a whole lot of technical people in there about social media and say... You guys come up with some reform mechanisms to enhance reform of social media. Would that work? Yes. Well, I mean, I think that was what came through really clearly when they had whistleblower Francis Haugen from Facebook testifying earlier, I think this year, to Congress about the fact that organisations like Facebook actually already know how to deal with, you know, violent extremists, how to deal with groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers when they appear to be organising to undertake violent exercises. They actually have the ability to do these things. And one of the things that has become very clear after the January 6th storming of the Capitol building was that organisations like Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all of the other big social media companies wound back their controls after the election. As far as they were concerned, their only responsibility was to control things while the election was going on. They let it rip once the election was over. Mm. Shirley Leach, you've given me the spooks today. There's so much to be done, but Thanks for waking us up to what we need to get on with. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Amanda. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you join us again next week. Don't forget, if you've got something to tell us, just go to the ABC site, go to RN, and follow the prompts to CounterPoint. This is Amanda Vanso saying ciao. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.